Well, good morning, church. In case you missed that right there and you're new here with us, what he said is real. Even if it is your very first time here at MCC today, uh, we'd love to be able to take care of lunch for you today. We're having a connecting point lunch right after this service out there. It's Olive Garden when you're here, your family. So come on and we'll dive into that together. Um, but before we do that, let's dive into the word. If you got a Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today. Hooray, we made it to Hebrews chapter 11. I've been really looking forward to making it this far. We got out of chapter 10. It only took us 17 and a half weeks, but we got there. So let's go. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We are entering into what's called the Faith Hall of Fame by a lot of people who kind of read through and process through this. We're getting ready to kind of give a survey of the entire Old Testament and its heroes and all those things. They're all kind of bound up in Hebrews chapter 11. Amazing chapter, awesome chapter, a lot of positive stuff about our faith and how it grows, how it holds fast, and how it endures to the very end. So if you got a Bible, hopefully you're at Hebrews chapter 11. Today we're going to make it about three verses, maybe four. See how that goes. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and that he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verses one through three and then here verse six are the primary ones we're gonna lean into today. Verse six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that nobody in here today sits down and thinks that the reason they showed up is primarily because they were seeking you. The reason we're here today, God, is because you, first and foremost, have sought us. You are the great God who stepped out of divinity and came down here into humanity, came to this world seeking to save that which was lost, Jesus. Jesus, you came on a seeking mission to save us. You chose not to come into this world to be served, but you came to serve. You chose not to come into this world to condemn, but to save. So today I pray that we would start our conversation there as people, despite what we've done or not done, who were sought after by God the Father, his Son, the Savior, and his Spirit, the God. Jesus, we thank you that now after understanding, hopefully, the links to which you went to to seek us and to save us, we can then from now seek after you, that we can open your word and see these formerly hidden truths now brought to light under the power of the gospel. Jesus, I pray for my friends and family who are here today listening to your word. 
that they would be able to get exactly what you need them to get. Maybe not what they came looking for, but what you needed them to hear. I pray you would move me out of the way that you would guide and reign and rule in my words so that what is spoken, first and foremost, glorifies and magnifies you. Allow the preaching of your word to be living and active, to save, to change, to call to repentance, and to do those things that only your living word could do in the lives of us. In your name, amen. I want to give you a little bit of context to make sure we're all on the same page before we dive into this text. What's going on here in this book of Hebrews is this pastor is writing to this very early church that has started and has broken out. And most of these people are coming from faith that was originally in the God of the Bible, Yahweh. But now they've understood that Jesus is the full completion of that. They identified themselves as Jews, but now they are, are Christians who have a Jewish heritage But what's happening here is they're coming in and many of them are experiencing some of the things that we all like at church. They're experiencing uh, preaching of the word. They're experiencing the fellowship. They're eating and breaking bread together and enjoying those things. I don't know if they had unlimited breadsticks and unlimited salad like we're going to have today at Connecting Point, but they had some amazing things. They had those and they experienced them and they were really liking that. And they understood more importantly than breadsticks and the fellowship and hearing new teaching and everything else. They understood the magnitude of who Jesus was as God's son. And they were giving their lives to him, many of them. Yet some of them were saying, I love the teaching. I love the fellowship. This idea of Jesus being God's son, really being the Messiah, really being the one who makes it to where I don't have to go and sacrifice an animal to cover up my sin and mistakes anymore, but sacrifice his own life as the lamb of God to cover my sin once and for all. Those are all really good ideas. But people are kind of getting angry and I'm not experiencing the level of comfort that I want when people know that I'm a Christian. So what's happening here in this local church is there is a battle between, between people's comfort and people's Christian faith. Now this is where we can all relate because this is the battle that we all face. This is a battle that's going on right now in your chair. The battle between American comfort and your Christian faith. The battle between comfort and Christ. Comfort and Christ. And what he's seeing happen is some people in his congregation are letting go and shrinking back from their faith in Christ in order to maintain safety, in order to live life that is conflict and pain-free. They are letting go of Jesus, and he is warning them. All of the back half of chapter 10, you can go back and read it, was a stern warning that there was no hope for those who said that there was no hope in Christ and turned back and went into the life that they had formerly known, formerly lived before finding Jesus. He shows them in these passages, this tension between living by faith and shrinking back. And for everybody here today, this will be your life. You either live this life living by faith, living by faith in the locker room, living by faith at the ball field, living by faith at your workplace, living by faith in traffic, living by faith in these avenues and in these places, or you'll shrink back compromise. There's a couple of verses before the ones that we're going to lean into today that I think are foundational for us to understand because these are the key things that he is expounding upon. He's going to spend the rest of this entire chapter leveraging for them. First one is in Hebrews 10, 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
he's making this point to them that our drawing near is an act of faith. So we, with full assurance of this faith, draw near. We're faithful that what we draw near to is gonna be manifest. We're gonna experience it because of that. We're moving forward. We're coming in with full assurance of faith and our hearts are gonna be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies will be washed with pure water. And the verse we ended last Sunday with, but we, he's giving them an I am statement, declaring who they are as a congregation. And we said this even of ourselves. Hopefully this is what MCC becomes a church defined as. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's making this huge connection between having faith and a preserved soul. And he's saying, without faith, your soul will not be preserved. He tells them very plainly in the few verses before, you can go back and see it in chapter 10. Without faith, your soul will be destroyed. Bad things happen. And so this leads the original listeners to the same place it should lead us as listeners of going, okay, if it is only through faith that my soul, that deep inside part of me is secure and preserved and will spend eternity with the Father, then I need to get to this place where I understand what in the world is this faith and how in the world do I live this faith out so that I know that my soul is in this process of preservation. And this is what the pastor does because he anticipates the same way I did that you would ask, well, what in the world is faith? If my soul will be crushed and destroyed without it, well, what is it? He takes them to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, imagine you have uh, a 10-year-old Timmy. 10-year-old Timmy comes to you in the hallway of our church somewhere and 10-year-old Timmy just goes, listen, I wanna be saved. Can you tell me how to do that? Now, hopefully you don't go, where's your youth pastor? (laughs) Let me find you somebody who can tell you the truth. Hopefully you've got enough confidence and when this little kid, 10-year-old Timmy, comes to you and goes, I wanna be saved. And you say, well, uh, we are saved by grace through faith. And you feel like, I just nailed it, yeah. Say by grace through faith. I'm glad I remembered that. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And then 10-year-old Timmy just throws a wrench in the garbage disposal of your faith and goes, well, well, what is faith? And then you scramble for a little bit and you remember this verse and you go, 10-year-old Timmy, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And 10-year-old Timmy looks at you like you're Spider-Man because he has no idea what this means. Now, let's all be honest here in this morning. How much of you can relate to 10-year-old Timmy? You hear this definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And you go, mm-hmm. Your church people say, so you're like, amen. I, yeah, I like that. That sounds good. Put that on a coffee cup. But in your heart, you're going, I don't know what that means. I kind of do. I kind of don't. Let's see. Let's, let's try to walk through it. Um, in a room like this, we've got a couple of different Bible translations. There's King James people. There's New International Version people. There's English Standard Version. That's kind of what I usually stick out of. There's New American Standard Bible. Today, I'm going to show you some stuff that is actually in the ESV and then the New American Standard Bible. For those of you, most everybody's aware of this, but just to make sure we're on the same page. The Bible was not written in English. Um, some of you are like, what? <laughs> Word? Um, we have a translation of the Bible that comes from the earliest manuscripts and, it, and it's actually written in Greek. And so when the translators of all this New International, New American Standard, English Standard, all those people, when they're, when they're translating this, they're going off of the Greek language and trying to figure out what 
based on the context of what's being said here and the language and how the sentence is structured, what is the best English word that matches with what that Greek word means? And what happens in our modern translations and even translations that are older, you can come to these places where different words sometimes mean slightly, usually not drastically, sometimes, but usually mean slightly different interpretations. And so what I wanna walk you through today is, is showing you some of those different variations and trying to lean into the points that I think really proves what the author is about so that you can read a passage like this and go, oh, I actually understand what that really means. And bring it on, 10-year-old Timmy. I can't wait for you to come and ask me these questions. All right, so we're gonna try to do that with this verse. I'm gonna show you it in the New American Standard Bible. It says, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. I looked at almost every Bible translation I could find. This one happened to be uh, my favorite based off of what I think the author's really at. So to show you back in, any, in the ESV, faith is the assurance of things hoped for in the ESV. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for in the ESV. Now, personally, I think those things are a little bit different. There's an assurance. I think the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, NIV is confidence, right? Is that right? Somebody who's looking at NIV, confidence? Okay, cool. Confidence, assurance. I'd like to flip the scale all the way to 10 and go, it's certainty. Faith is certainty in the things that I am hoping for. It's not that I'm confident. Like confidence is kind of like, yeah, I think the Braves might win one game in this series against I'm confident they'll at least win one. All right, that's my confidence. All right, but I'm not certain especially after last night, doesn't look really certain. Brace fans, amen? But there is a level of certainty that I think this author is really in his original intent. And again, I'm basing this not off of what he just says in this one verse, but what he says in every person that he cites. Most of the time when you're in a, a classroom environment or you're reading something and it's something that the, the concept is somewhat difficult to understand, a good teacher will give you example after example after example after example to try to prove the thing that was maybe the little bit difficult con concept to understand. And that's what this pastor does for all of chapter 11 as he lists out in great detail all of these Old Testament heroes and the life that they lived by the faith that he's talking about right here. So when we see this passage and it says, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. To, to put this on a level that I would say, and again, this is me not trying to um, rewrite scripture. This is a way that I would paraphrase this to hopefully put it in a place where we all can go, okay, I understand what that's saying. I, I would say it's this, faith is living as if the things hoped for are real. So everybody in this room, you got things that you're hoping for. And if we're Christians, we have Christian things that we're hoping for. Like if I hope that eternity is real, then I'm gonna live my life down here making sure that I will experience an eternity with God in heaven. If I believe, let's, let's get a little bit more practical than the big giant cosmic thing. If down here as a Christian, I believe in God's word that it says, vengeance is mine. Turn the other cheek. Don't repay evil with evil, but repay evil with good. If I believe that God will dole out whatever punishment and vengeance that he wants to on anybody who has wronged me or hurt me, then the way I live down here, if I believe that, is I don't seek retribution on my own. Because I believe that God will take care of that. It's actually living like what I hope for is real. 
and it's really coming, and it's really gonna happen. Now, a big, maybe no fun, but hopefully revelatory question that I wanna ask for you to hopefully diagnose some stuff that's going on in your life is if you were to look at your life and the things that are going on right now, things that are happening, things that happened this week or this morning, what does your life look like you are hoping in right now? If I was to watch your life on video, which is scary for you to think about and me, if I was to watch everything, or somebody was to watch everything that was going on, what would it look like you're hoping in? Would it look like you're hoping in money? By the long hours that you spend, by the dinners that you miss, by the little half-truths that you tell? Does it look like your hope is in money? If somebody could hear the thoughts you think when you look in the mirror, that's scary. <laughs> or shameful, one, out, one or the other. Some of you think all sorts of wild things. You know, most guys, um, I still got it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, we, guys, we, th- we get in the mirror and we get confident. It's the opposite end, I think, for, for the other side of the uh, gender spectrum. But when you look in the mirror, if somebody could hear the things that you think, what would it say that you're hoping in? And the vanity that comes with beauty? If people could see your life, if you could see your life, or if you could go back and look at the last few weeks of your life based off of what you're doing, What does it say you're hoping in? And do those things, match up with the things of God. Am I hoping that I do have this father in heaven who says that anything that I left or or lost in this life will be repaid 30, 60, 100 fold. So I'm living my life with generosity. Do I believe this God who said, you will not make it through this world alone. You need the fellowship of believers. Or do I just go, you know what? I'm the exception. I can Lone Ranger Christian this thing into eternity. What does your life say that you're actually hoping for? So this passage, in the regards to the certainty, it says, live as if the things that you're hoping for are certainly going to come to pass. Now, if that's the case, <clears throat> then we really have to get on the same page and understand what we're hoping for, right? So go back to the verse. It says, faith is the assurance or faith is the certainty of the things hoped for. We've got to understand that there is this huge connection that sometimes we miss. And maybe you've never put words to this, but hopefully something inside your soul is going to go, oh, that's what I've been feeling. And that's why I don't feel that way or I do feel that way. There is this huge connection between things hoped for and faith. Maybe you've never made this connection before, but the reality in your life that you're hoping, that you're hoping that something would be different, the reality of hope in your life means that the current state of your life is a state of discontent. Let me say that again. The fact that you're hoping anything proves that right now there's a state of discontent in your life. If there is hope in you, it's because that you have found the current state of things unsatisfactory. You're not good with how things are going, so you're hoping things will change. Married people in the room, if you're going, man, I wish there was some more joy in this marriage. I hope that there's gonna be joy in the future of my marriage. The reason that you're hoping that is because currently there's discontent with the level of joy in your marriage. Don't say amen. 
if you're in this room and you're not married, there's likely this hope that you will be married one day. And the reason you have that hope that you will be married is because you haven't been married yet. And if you're in this room and you're hoping to be married and you already are married, you need to send me an email and we'll get some marriage counseling going. All right, that's not a good thing. If you're here and you're like, man, I hope that I I make some more money in the future. The reason you're hoping to make more money in the future is because you're discontent, track with me, you're discontent with the level of money that you're making right now. So to, to make the point here in regards to our faith, the foundational element of faith is a discontent heart. This is where it actually begins. There has to be something down here on planet earth, deep inside of us, this this heart, soul, whatever you wanna label it is what the Bible calls a few different things, heart, soul, mind. There's got to be something in here that gives this soul level, heart level groaning that goes, I am discontent the way this thing is. There's got to be something more than this. And I want you to, for a second, just, just go back and replay your faith story. I was leaning into this this week and I was like, man, that is so my story. I grew up in a home where, it was a roller coaster. There were some really good days, but man, you really never knew what house you were walking into. It was a home where there was substance abuse. It was a home where there was physical abuse. It was a home where there was verbal abuse. You, you never really knew what you were going to see. And from a very early on age, I, I knew that this is not what family is supposed to be like. And from a very early age, I, I was discontent in what I saw and experienced in that home. And then around seventh grade, in the driveway of a man named Hewlett Cook who was selling an Oldsmobile station wagon, Hewlett met a stranger and invited that stranger to his church because that church did a great job with their student and kids ministry. So Hewlett invited this stranger who was Perry Shoemake, my father. And for some stroke of grace, Perry Shoemake, my father, decided to take my family, who had never been to church before, to Whitesburg Christian Church. And there, this seventh grade, right slap dab in the middle of everything that comes with puberty, kid, who was incredibly discontent with what was happening at home, who's incredibly discontent hearing his mom lock herself in the bathroom after a fight had ended in the worst way one can end until she could get herself all the way put back together to come back out and put a smile on for her kids. The kid who was incredibly discontent with what happened at his home walked into a church home and for the first time ever partnered with the discontentment of what I experienced in my own family, walked into a church family and a good old fashioned Southern fellowship hall and and met men of God like Charlie Gordon and and women of God like like Ozell Gordon, the, the Sherwins, the Merediths, these people who had every reason to not like this punk seventh grade skateboarder kid with long, way too long for church hair. But I walked in that place and man, oh man, I realized this is what family is supposed to be like. 
And the only reason I knew what it was supposed to be like is because I knew what it was not supposed to be like. I was discontent. I remember asking our youth pastor, I was like, <laughs> why are these people like this? I was very curious. I was like, I, I love it. I'm not mad at it. But why are they like this? Why, why, why do they, why, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I scared the mess out of Ozell, you know, in, this, in the parking lot because my skateboard ran under her car and banged it around. And she just asked me, you know, she didn't yell at me or holler at me or smack me with her cane. Like she just said, have you eaten dinner yet? And walk me downstairs. <laughs> Why are they like this? And, and the simple short answer was, it's because of Jesus. That's what makes us this way. <laughs> I was like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know about all of that. I don't know what the future holds, but if that's what makes them like that, then I want to be like that. So I want him. And man, track your faith story. And, and, and you may think, well, I was at this conference or I was at this camp and the preacher was just, you know, he's just slaying, you know, preaching the paint off the walls and something just made me go, yes, Lord, I surrender. Or it was a song or it was something. Listen, I'm telling you, behind that, behind whatever great sermon, behind the, the, the foundational element, and God knows this about us. This is, this is why he has to make you feel this. And this is why there is a battle right now raging in the world that we live in to make you content with the trappings of this world so that you never get so discontent with him that you seek Jesus. He knows that if he can get you discontent with the things of this world, you will begin to live a life for the things of the world to come, the unseen world. And your story is exactly the same. I don't know if it was the discontentment in a family, discontent in a relationship, discontent with what the college life was supposed to be like, discontent with trying to be the popular fit in for everybody else, high school student, discontent with the rat race of making as much money as you could. But I'm willing to bet if you track your faith down to its most elemental level, it started with a discontentment of the way things were and a hope that things could be different. And that led you to Jesus. Now, if that's the case, that for us, the foundational element of our faith is actually a discontent heart, we've kind of got some bad news. And the bad news is that if we live here in this area and we're Americans, then we as a, as a whole are by and large very safe very well protected, uh, very well fed. There are hospitals in every major city, police access. We have hospitals and police right at our fingertips. And despite the fact that, that right in front of nearly all of us are the resources that we need to live a good life and the vast majority of other people in the world do not have nearly as much as what we have, there's still something inside of us, people with seemingly who have it all or who have access to it all, there's still something inside of almost every single one of us that gnaws at us saying, there's got to be something more. And so if that's the reality for people who have it all, so to speak, and this is true, that the foundational element of faith is a discontent heart, then, then maybe we shouldn't think about the wrath of God as God sending forest fires on people. Or we shouldn't think, you know, because this is sometimes how we get in our little Christian bubbles and stuff. 
We think about the wrath of God and well, that's God sending the flood on that place where they do witchcraft or, or how wicked Hollywood. That's why California's on fire because God's sending his judgment. You know, we, we say and we think these things that that's the wrath of God, this, the fire and the flood and the pestilence. That's the wrath of God. Well, if this is true, that the foundational element of faith is a discontent heart, then could it not be the wrath of God to make you wealthy, healthy, and comfortable. See, if, if this is true, then the worst thing that could happen to you in life is you to be completely satisfied with your slice of pie. If this is true, then the American dream maybe isn't that dreamy anymore. Maybe the American dream is a Christian nightmare. If discontentment is the foundational element that leads to faith in God. Let me talk to you about dogs for a second. I know I take hard right turns. You gotta stick with me. Let me talk to you about dogs, all right? <clears throat> I travel a decent, decent amount. You know, we, we, we fly somewhere every now and then and go to other places and you see how people are with their dogs. And it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, and for those of you who are dog people, don't, don't, you don't have to send me an email. I love dogs. I really do love dogs. I'm just talking about how we love them. Um, you know, you, you go places and you, and you used to not see dogs in stores, but now you go to Home Depot and that was used to like kind of the first place. It was like, okay, Home Depot is kind of dirty anyway. Like just bring the dog, you know, whatever, you know. But now you're sitting at a restaurant and, and it's not like a service dog. Like that's a thing. But, but like, it's like somebody just had their dog in their purse and you're like, okay, you know, and like you're flying on an airplane and it's like, well, your dog is farting under your seat and it's like we're all gagging like this is just like it won't stop barking can you put it like can is there a secret compartment to the hole of the plane that we can just like the the vacuum shoot just shoot it down there so we can all rest on the rest of this flight and we we, we see the amount of money like you can go to PetSmart right here and you can buy your dog fine china and get his nails done and a house and a jacket and a coat and shoes and we can do all these things for our animals and, and hear me I'm not I'm not bashing that I promise I'm going somewhere I'm not trying to pick on dog people but what happens is when we play out this thinking that that this is this thing that is the equivalent of a human life and again, don't go like, oh, we don't, me and my house, we don't think that way. Again, maybe you don't, but I've been in McDonough and I've seen stickers on the back of cars that says Dotson grandma. And I'm like, how are you a Dotson's grandma? Or, or you're driving down the road and like, how does that work? Or you're driving down the road and it's like Rottweiler mom. And I'm like, do you know who Rottweiler's mom is really that Rottweiler's mom? It's mom. Like that's its mom. It gave birth to that. You're its owner and you care for it and you, and you love it and you let it lick the inside of your mouth because you're so weird. Like, yeah, you do these things. And, 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 we, and we see how our society is. And again, I wanna, I wanna take you to the full end of the spectrum. Like there are people, and, and this is not you guys. I'm not saying this is necessarily church people. Most church people are not here. But the, the, I'm, watching, I'm showing you the rest of society and where our thinking goes in this. There are people in our society, in our country, and, and this is kind of what we're known for. Around the world, people are looking at us and just going, you guys are idiots. We vehemently deny and are militantly against, some people, militantly against euthanizing or killing an animal, dog, 
that, that is inconvenient or no longer serves a purpose or is unwanted. And we will, we will do protests and rallies for the sanctity of the life of an animal, meanwhile show up at the same protest that murders the life of an unborn child. This is our, this is our country. <laughs> And, and so what, what I'm trying to show you here is when we place so much value on the life of an animal, if we're not careful, it can devalue the fact that we as God's people are created in the imago Dei, the image of God. And there is in fact something special about us. But track with me. And those of you who are clapping are gonna probably regret clapping in a second. Um, what blows my mind more than the care that people, and myself too, the care that people can place and the money that people can invest and the riled upness that people can get over animals, what blows my mind more than that is how content I can be to live the life of an animal. I'm not talking about being a furry. I'm talking about living a life that is content with being a domesticated beast. Think about those dogs that have the good life. What do they have? They've got food when they want it. They trust that it's gonna be there. They don't ever worry about food. They don't ever worry about shelter. They, entertain, they have their entertainment. You give them that little thing that you can go buy. They take the ball to the thing. They put it down, poof, and then they shoot it out, and then they go get the thing. They don't even have to have you anymore. They can just entertain themselves. And then they go to bed. You got them a nice little warm bed in their nice little warm house. They can go rest. And then when they live out the uh, length of their, their good dog years on life, you take them to the hospital, and then you give them a nice little shot, and they don't feel a thing, and they just go to sleep, and they never wake up. And, and hear me, what blows my mind more than the money, attention, and weight that we put on dogs is how content so many of us, myself included, are content with chasing our own tails. Saying, I just wanna eat, I just wanna drink, I just wanna be entertained, and I wanna die peacefully and easy. Friend, you were created in the image and likeness of God. You were created for a great, grand purpose. And Satan's ultimate strategy is to make you content with this life. And if he can't make you feel discontent, his next best goal is to make you distracted. This is why the dial has gotten turned up on that. Because when we get alone with ourselves, when we get alone and pray to God, when we get alone and have these moments where we really begin to go, what matters in my life? Am I living the life that I'm really supposed to? Am I really just living the life that I feel like culture has just put me in this giant lazy river and I'm just floating down it, seeing where it takes me? See, if, if Satan can't get you to be just over and abundantly content with the way things are down here, he'll just get you distracted enough. So those moments you start to ask big questions like, what am I really supposed to be doing with my life? Your phone will start to buzz. What am I really supposed to be doing with my life? I don't know, maybe I could be a, um, I don't know, a dog groomer. You know, people like dogs. Well, let me go Google it. Well, before I Google it, let me just see if I got any notifications. Oh, I'm on Facebook now. Oh, now I've spent 14 hours today just scrolling, 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 scrolling. Now look, you were this close to getting up in your purpose, but you got distracted. 
And, and, and here's, sorry to, to rant on this, but I, I think this is the fundamental element of, if you're here and you're like, <clears throat> my faith doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I think, and maybe let's make this connection together as a, as a family. Maybe the reason it feels like your faith isn't going anywhere is because you're not discontent enough with where it is. And so you, you haven't grown sick and tired of just getting by to get by. You haven't grown sick and tired of just every time anybody asks you what you're doing, how are you doing? Really busy. Well, like, doesn't that kind of feel like it's crushing your soul? Yeah. Don't I feel super productive? My soul is deteriorating and rusting out and I don't know how long I'm gonna make it, but I'm busy. There's gotta be more than, there's gotta be more to life than this. And this, this is why so many of us will invest in so many things that are just not worthy investments. You were created to be so discontent with this world that you invest in a new world. You invest in eternal things. And what God would lay at our feet is this reality and truth that friend, if you are down here and you don't take the time to be discontent with things of this world and to process out what would it take from God? How would my faith grow so that now I would experience an amazing level of contentment that I had never experienced before? Then you're gonna miss out on where God wants to take you and what he wants to do through your life. There's, look, this being satisfied in the world has led a lot of people to some really good things. There's some of you in this room who misdiagnosed spiritual discontentment and went and developed an amazing golf game. You needed something to live for and you found it in golf. Some of you are world-class outdoorsmen. And the reason you're a world-class outdoorsman with, with all sorts of dead animals strung up all around your place is because there was a soul level discontentment that you satisfied with an eight, 10, 12 point buck. Some of you, there's a soul level discontentment and you have more shoes than you even know or realize in your closet because buying things gave you a temporary distraction so that you never solved a soul level discontentment. Some of you are gonna hand down to your family. And this is, this is where it's crazy because it's like, it's kind of something positive, but you never solve the soul thing. Some of you are gonna hand down your family generational wealth. But you're handing them down generational wealth without ever solving a discontent soul. So you're gonna hand down to them things that may distract their soul from the things that matter the most too. So listen, I'm all for go make, the, go make a lot, a lot, a lot of money, but make sure your soul is rich as well. So this verse, it's heavy, it's very heavy, but we've got to understand if we're going to be people of faith, then the foundational element of our faith is a discontent heart. And again, discontent with everything in the world, but fully content in Jesus. Let's keep going in the verse. Back half now, we kind of pounded this one into the ground. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for and a proof of things not seen. That's the way it communicates it in the NASB. And I feel like the NASB nails it right here, that it is not the way the ESV places that. It says that faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now, a conviction of things not seen 
is different than proof of things not seen. My personal opinion on this, as far as how it's translated, I, I can stand to agree with the people who are from the NASB camp. I think the King James is also in this. I get that right. That faith is a proof of things not seen. Which, on the surface level, you go, how is faith a proof of things not seen? And why is that really what he's talking about here? Track with me. When you are, again, explaining a concept... You want to give things that prove that. Well, what you have in the whole rest of chapter 11, when you read about Enoch and Abel and Noah and Moses and David and all of these Old Testament characters, what all of them are, are proofs of this reality that faith is certainty of things that are hoped for and it's a proof of things not seen. So to kind of take us to this question, how does faith prove the unseen reality of God? Big question. How does faith Prove the unseen reality of God. I'll do what the author's doing and, and just give you an example, okay? Take one story that we all know that's really gotten a bad rap in children's ministry because it's a gruesome, violent, terrible story. Noah. All right, now we, we precious moments, characters, and all the elephants love each other and everything else, but there's not a lot of those stories with people floating by just going, like the, and drowning literally everybody except for Noah and his family. But Noah shows up and he's like, I'm a righteous guy. And God sees Noah show up and be a righteous guy in an unrighteous world. And Noah gets this message from God. And God goes, listen, Noah, I'm sick of this, people. I'm, I'm over it. Wrath, angry. Noah built a boat, big old boat, a B-O-B, big old boat, Noah. Wood, get it ready. Big old boat, I'm gonna save your family. Yes, you're gonna become a zoologist. You're gonna get all these animals up on this boat and your family's gonna get this boat. It's gonna rain for 40 days, 40 nights and then I'll let you get off the boat. You know, imagine Noah, fellas, have you ever tried to talk your wife into a building something or purchasing something that you knew didn't really make a whole lot of sense and you had to go in and ask her about that, all right? Think about Noah, all right? Now, ladies, if, if God told Noah to build a giant boat, it hadn't really rained, it was gonna rain for 40 days, like when your husband comes in with some crazy idea, at least listen. Um, he shows up, he tells his wife, he tells his people. And again, like I could restore a Mustang in my garage and not everybody in my neighborhood know. But if I'm building a boat, like some of y'all have been to that Noah's Ark thing in Kentucky, you couldn't hide that in your yard. Everybody's like, what is he doing? Like, you're an idiot, Noah. This is so stupid. But, again, this is what the pastor in Hebrews is trying to tell them. By faith, Noah built the boat. And everybody's going, Noah's an idiot. Until it starts to rain. Now, once it starts to rain, rain and rain and rain and rain and rain. Now, Noah, by faith, built the boat. And here's why I would say his faith proves the existence of an unseen God. Because by faith, he did the by faith thing. He built the boat. And then it rained, and then his family was saved, and somehow he got tigers and elephants to get along. All this stuff happens. Rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Literally everybody besides his family dies. And they look around and go, this was God. Proof. This 
was God. So, so here's what's crazy about faith. Like, um, I, I, I could have somebody come up here and stand, and I could just have them stand right there, and I go, look at them and tell me if you can see their faith. Like, if, if somebody's standing right there, you're like, show me your faith. But you can't move. You can't do anything. Can, they, can you see their faith? No. They're just up there. See, you can have this thing in your head. Because, yeah, I believe in God. But what this passage, all of chapter 11 is gonna show us, there's nobody in here that was like, this person just had the right idea about God. It's like, no, Abel offered a more pleasing sacrifice. Moses did this with the people in Israel. Enoch walked with God. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, put him on the altar. By faith, these people did something. There was belief met with action. So how does faith prove the unseen reality of God? When we take the step of faith, God proves to do what he said he was gonna do and shows up like he said he was gonna show up. That step of faith gives God this moment to show up and to come through like he said he would. Which is wild because we sit down here and this is, this is almost all of us, a question we've asked at some point in our life. We've gone, God, would you just prove yourself? Prove it. And we're asking God to prove it. He's asking us to have faith. We're going, God, I'd have faith if you just show me something. And God's going, well, I'd prove it if you just show me some faith. I mean, this is the back and forth between humanity and divinity. And look, here, here's what I'm showing. If you want God to prove it, faith it. Just like show the faith and he'll show himself. And again, I'm not just going like, hey, here's the concept or model that's happened in my life. We're literally getting ready to go through almost a dozen people in the Old Testament who that was their exact story. It had not rained a drop. And Noah is in the forest cutting down the biggest trees he can find. God shows up to Abraham and Sarah and is like, y'all are old, old, old. But you're gonna have a kid. And then they have a kid. And the same God's like, yeah, Abraham, I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. You're gonna have more kids in your family than stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And then he gives them this one kid. And then he tells him to sacrifice that one kid to him. And, 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 and Abraham's like, the math isn't math in God. It doesn't work like this. But if you say so, and he walks by faith up a mountain to sacrifice his son and God intercedes, foreshadowing the fact that there would come a time when God would send his own son to a mountain and not intercede. And it's all by faith. And so passage goes on. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. I do like the way the ESV has that word there. It's not just this testimony, but it is this testimony that God approves of. It is God going, I am commending you for the faith that I showed you. Part of that commendation is the proof that God meets you in the midst of your steps of faith. Build the boat. It's going to rain. Sacrifice. Sacrifice the son, 
I'll send a substitute. It's, it's God commending them and saying, I commend the faith that I saw in you because you trusted me. And in our lives, this is, this is where we're either gonna end up in this place of commendation of God going, I commend your faith, you trusted me, or we end up in a place of condemnation. Commendation, condemnation. Again, whether it's shrink back or walk by faith, this is where either side of those live. Live by faith, commendation. Shrink back, condemnation. Last, or second to last verse we'll tackle. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Back to this whole idea of things you can't see and things you can't. When God was going to create the world, this is what he's saying here. He's trying to help the people understand that it is not going to, you are not gonna see the proof positive of God until you see your faith take steps forward. He's saying that's how it's been from the beginning. God didn't go to some garage in the cosmos and start pulling out raw materials to create the universe with. How did he create it? Let there be light. He speaks, the very word of God is what speaks creation into existence. And that's why he's saying, it is out of nothing that something happens. And that's where he's gonna continue to go through the entire thing to help people understand that is out of faith and trust, this thing that you can't necessarily put uh, handles to that gives you the proof from God that gives you the things to put handles to. When Abraham walks up the mountain, you can't see his faith that God's going to intercede and somehow God's gonna work this out. But when Abraham comes back down the mountain and he's super tight with Isaac, he's like, ooh, that's a bullet right there, big guy. This is the proof. This is the truth that God's word is, is, is manifesting. The promise is it's right here. He's here. He's not dead. <laughs> and, and you're with me. And for us in our lives, this is where the word of God is huge. The word of God is the revelation of God. And the word of God is not just foundational for creation. The word of God is foundational for our salvation. If you're here and you're saved by Jesus, the reason you are saved by Jesus is because this world word was illuminated to you in a way that the gospel just blew your mind and you said, yes, that's true about me and that's true about him and I wanna surrender and submit my life under this word. And again, in regards to our discontentment with the world, the more and more I, this, this is, I've watched this in so many people's lives and for some reason, I've forgotten it way too many times that I can count. And I, when I bump into a mess in my own life, I have to come back to this reality that my contentment with the world and what it has to offer me is in direct line with my lack of time in the word. The more I'm in the word of God, the more and more discontent I get with the world around me because I see the truth. I see what's real. I don't want what's out there anymore. I want this God that I read on these pages to be real in my life. He says about the word, that the word is what really bring us to faith. And Paul expounds upon this in the book of Romans. He says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He's connecting these two things in together. Another passage I love about faith and grace and everything else is one we walked through when we went through Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, for grace you have been saved through faith, which we all kind of go, okay, yeah. That's the one we told Timmy, right? Grace, you've been saved through faith. No, we didn't tell Timmy this part. We should have. 
And this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Which is to say that, you know, those of you in the room or maybe you bumped into this person somewhere who's like, well, I laid out all the other world religions and I had Buddhism, Hinduism, and that Tom Cruise thing. I had them all laid out there and I looked at them all and I investigated them all and I weighed out the pros and cons and then I choose to put my faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I did. Mm. Faith is the gift of God. So listen, if you have faith in God, what you need to understand is you didn't do it. You received the gift of the one. Go back to where we started today. He's been seeking after you before the foundations of the world. And in his seeking, in his pursuit, in his relentless journey to show you his love and his grace, he has been orchestrating the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life to get you to this place where you would be so discontent with the things of this earth that you would have to go, there is something more. And he would be standing right there going, yes, there is something more. And I am him, your Lord and your savior. My name is Jesus Christ. Nice to meet you. That's his hope. That's his goal. That's what he wants to do with our lives. Last place we'll go. This is verse six. I told you we didn't hear. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Of all the verses we've gone through in Hebrews, I feel like this is probably the most simple and easy to understand. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time explaining this to you. You get this. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. I've already told you what faith is. Without that, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Again, you know, if I tell you, hey, everybody out in the parking lot, there's a 400 foot purple elephant with wings. Go out there and check it out. None of you are going like, oh, I can't go to the bathroom on the way to church. I gotta go see that giant purple elephant. You're going, that doesn't exist, dude. I'm not going to look at that. It's not real. That makes sense. That's not hard to understand. This next one though, practically speaking, is one we kind of maybe get hung up on. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. Now we see the R word and we're like, ooh, I like rewards, you know? Every Friday, Ezra gets to go get something out of the treasure box in his kindergarten class. If he had a good week, get something out of the treasure box. He's looking for it on Friday, wakes up. Friday morning, just a little bit more hype, a little bit more pep in that step. He gets out of bed a little bit faster. All right, because he's getting that treasure box. And sometimes we can come to God like that. Like, I want what you can give me. Listen, what God rewards us with is more of an experience with him. More, and listen, here's what he is. Some of you want God's provision without first realizing God is provider. Some of you want peace without God realizing God is peace. Some of you want you know, sustenance or, or, or joy in your life without realizing he is it. You want him to give you the thing and he's going, I am the thing. Like, Seek me and you'll get me and all those things that you want because I am the living embodiment of your creator who knows what you need. I created you, I hardwired you. I know what meets your needs and it's me. That's why we are literally a match made in heaven. The father, the son, the Holy Spirit and you his son or you his daughter. So the question then becomes, I'll leave you with this, ponder through communion. How will I seek? If he rewards those who seek, how will I seek this week? What does it look like? 
it in the word? Is it in prayer? How will you seek this week? Maybe before you seek, you need to get sick. Sick of how drastically unsatisfying the things of this world are. And be honest. That I've been trying to tell myself that this thing would be an acquired taste. The first time I tasted it, it was gross and it's still gross. It's not an acquired taste. I don't know what it is for you. my prayer for you is that you would get sick of what this world has to offer and that you would seek this week the one who has everything to offer and who holds nothing back from you. And the fact, the truth, the proof that he holds nothing back from you is what you hold in your hands now if you have communion with you. His broken body, all of that body, has poured out blood, all of that blood for me and for you. As you commune with him, I pray you ask him that question. Jesus, how should I seek you this week? Let him speak, as he will. Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts and lives. Change us, mold us, shape us, not into better versions of ourselves, but into living embodiments of you here on earth so that we could say of ourselves, it was not me, but it was Christ in me, through me. If there be anybody here today, Jesus, who is discontent with their life enough to surrender it to you, put their whole trust and faith and hope in you today, I pray that they would surrender fully to you and your love and your grace. I pray today would be the day that they come forward and ask to be baptized. Today would be the day that they come forward and take a step into serving you, serving your bride here, the Lord.